0: This is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One today on You Forgot One, REM's Automatic for the People. Micaiah, what do we need to know about Automatic for the People?
1: All righty. Automatic for the People, eighth studio album from REM, who at this point are america and maybe the world's biggest rock and roll band right coming off of out of time which was huge for things like losing my religion uh, on the other end of the rem spectrum also shining happy people and this record gets is, is pretty far away from from even both of those um and it's pretty much considered their best album their greatest album in in uh, peter buck and mike mills from the band, pretty much Say So themselves have uh, retrospectively in interviews when they did like the 25th anniversary, they've both said that this is the one that they're, they're the most proud of. Um, on Rolling Stone's top 500 album lists, um, they had Murmur at 198, 197 on the 2003, 2012 list and Automatic for the People at 247 and then down to 249. Uh, but as of the recent 2020 list, they've had Automatic for the People at 96. It, it, it went from 247, 249 to 96 and cracked the top 100. So time has been really kind uh, to this album. And, and Murmur uh, went down to uh, 165, which is still up from 198, um, but it is below Automatic for the People now. And um, NME, 500 Greatest Albums list from 2013, has Automatic for the People at 65, even, mm-hmm. and, and then Murmur at 69. Uh, but unlike the latest Rolling Stones, they also include Green and Life's Rich Pageant. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is, this is a huge album. It, um, in a time when grunge is taking over, um, this album is just very far away from that grungy, hard, post-punk kind of sound and is mostly based around folk instruments that the band are playing and uh michael stipe's just melodic vulnerable lyricism and and singing so yeah it's and yet um while not being a kind of a typical 90s album it's pretty much one of the top five top ten best albums of the 90s from what might be one of the 10 great American rock
0: bands. One of the things that I love so much about Automatic for the People is that this is an album that seems unique amongst R.E.M.'s work. And I'm a huge R.E.M. fan, and even in preparation for our recording of this episode, you and I both have basically been listening to the entire R.E.M. discography over the last week and texting each other back and forth about our thoughts. And and I think one of the things that you and I maybe have both struggled with in the last week is is going, okay, we got this right, didn't we? That that it is automatic for the people. You and I are both big fans of Green, mm-hmm. of Murmur, of Reckoning. I mean, there there are there are so many great REM albums.
1: And even the stuff after this album, they don't stop making good records. Uh, you're a big yeah. fan of Monster, you've I mentioned hi Fi. New mentioned High Fi is another one that people call, like, oh, this is another masterpiece from a band who has many other <laughs> masterful works. It's pretty unprecedented to have, you know, they, they did 15 studio albums, and a third of them, uh, many people would say, are near perfect
0: albums. Yeah, I think, I think near-perfect is important. This is one of the conversations you and I have had. That yes. R.E.M. does not have a flawless work. You know, and so we- but
1: the thing with R.E.M. is I don't think they ever aimed for that much either. I, I don't think that perfection is the name of the game for them, which is another thing that makes, especially their early albums, so appealing. Kind of like the replacements. Like, mm-hmm. Let It Be is a perfect album. Because it includes something like Gary's got a boner and androgynous on the same record,
0: yeah. So, and, and I also wonder too if, if if that is by design, like you said, because yeah. even as I listen, as even as I listen to Automatic for the People, it's a twelve track album, and I find myself going, just get rid of Ignore Land and Money Got a Raw Deal. Like uh-huh. get rid of those two songs and in. this album is even better. Um, uh-huh. but, but again, I think that this is such a great album and for as much phenomenal work as R.E.M. did over their 31 year career, I don't think, at least if you're listening to these albums on vinyl, I don't think there's a single side of a record that can compete with the side A of Automatic for the People. And again, it sounds nothing like what is popular alternative music is at the time, Mm -hmm. and doesn't even sound like what what I have called elsewhere in this podcast the the coffee house rock of the '90s. Right. Um, So you think Toad the Wet Sprocket, Counting Crows, uh, you know bands like that? It doesn't. It doesn't sound like that either. It, It is. It is something unique to REM and mm-hmm. even amongst R.E.M's work automatic for the people is is a unique feat for them and and so i yeah. think this is this this is deserving of this is deserving of our pick as the R.E.M album but in in many ways this is a pick as much for the band as for the album itself this, that's
1: true cuz we have limited ourselves to not talking you know not including more than one Album. And, if, and if we're doing a top 500, I'll pro- I probably would have five R.E.M. albums on the top 500 list. Um, me personally. I, I, I would have Murmur, Reckoning, Life Rich Pageant, Automatic for the People, and um, probably Document.
0: Yeah, so I'm, I, I, Yeah, I, look, there's, there's no doubt this is a band we both love. Mm-hmm. And so I think for both of us, we agreed... In our initial list, we both had Automatic for the People. I think that's saying a lot. And then moving beyond that is going, okay, we both had Automatic for the People. Knowing we both were going to have an REM album, our our instinct was both to go Automatic for the People. And so I I think in many ways, we have to kind of honor that. And over the last week listening to these albums, I really have gone back over and over again and kind of landed at... A bunch of great albums. Automatic for the people is the unique standalone feat of their work. Mm-hmm. And and so because of that, it 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 does. It has a timeless quality. And and for as much as I love Murmur, Reckoning, Document, Green, Monster, like as much as I love as much as I love those 80s albums those albums sound like the 80s sound like the 80s and and, and weirdly enough monster very much sounds like a mid 90s recording in a way that I'm yeah. totally okay with and a fan of right but it sounds like the mid 90s something about automatic for the people it sounds timeless it sounds yeah. it sounds like a record not at home in a particular era or in a particular genre, and in that wandering quality of this album might be my favorite part of it.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that's where because of where REM is at the time as a band. Because in the '80s, you know they they have the replacements, they have Husker Du, they have the Smiths over in England, they have all these kind of other contemporary artists that they they're kind of looking at, and and they are friends with uh, many of the people we just named um, and, and, you know, friendly rivals. But by the 90s, there's no more replacements. There's no more The Smiths. There's no more Husker Du. There's no more Minutemen, right? So they are in a league of their own, and they also see this young crop of of grunge people kind of taking over the the alt music scene. And so there's no one else that they're really... They don't, they don't have their contemporaries. You know, they, they are, they're kind of the old guys for, for, you know, a college rock scene. They're in their young 30s, their early 30s now. You know, so they're in this moment where like, well, we're not trying to, to outdo the replacements or somebody. They're just R.E.M. And so they put out what might be the most R.E.M. album and they do the most R.E.M. thing Which is to instead of trying to keep up with the younger guys, um, they slow it down and they pick up folk instruments and they do something that is unique to their entire fifteen album catalog. And conveniently enough, being the eighth album, sits right in the middle of that discography. Mm -hmm. You know, which is conveniently kind of kind of perfect.
0: Yeah, and then if you listen to these twelve tracks, um, I think you get the I think you get the most diversity of of any one REM album in terms of all of the different shades of REM in one album. For better um, or worse. Yeah, for for better or worse. I think you get arguably Michael Stipes' best overall vocal performance on an album. And and I think some of that is age. I think he's just at an age where um, the, I feel the same way about Tom Waits there is there's there's like a 10-year sweet spot for Tom Waits where the the voice has matured it's not just like this put on kind of caricature thing that can mm-hmm. happen in some of the early Tom Waits albums and it and it isn't so raspy and, and kind of destroyed in the way that the Tom Waits al- albums are when they come out now like there's this sweet spot in it in this album is right smack in the middle of of Michael Stipe's sweet spot as a vocalist. Mm-hmm. That there is that there is age and maturity in his voice, um, but it has not become as as dark in and in, in as raspy as his voice becomes later on um Mm -hmm. that that his his voice definitely ages over their discography
1: well even in albums before this a little bit in things like begin the begin and in some moments in document uh he kind of has like a a hard rock kind of growliness to his voice sometimes and in the earlier records and he's known for this and beloved for it kind of mumbling kind of mumbling lyrics that are People uh, for years just like I I don't know the words to anything off Chronic Town, you know what I mean? Like, but people love Chronic Town, and I that's one of my favorites, Uh, one the Chronic Town EP. But people just didn't know. But in Automatic for the People, he you you really, I think he very intentionally lets you hear every word of what he's singing
0: one of the things that I think we do get by a more accessible uh, vocal performance from Michael Stipe on Automatic for the People is the unbelievable talent Mike Mills has as a background vocalist Mm
2: -hmm.
0: really shines through. I think he is one of the great rock background vocalists. Uh, I I, I would put him up there with The Edge in in U two, you know, you often you often think about U two songs, and you don't you don't think about the Edge's vocal performance because it doesn't like it doesn't stand out. Um, but if you were to remove his vocal performances from any of those songs, those are radically different songs, and that's what I feel like uh, the songs are automatic for the people. If you were to remove Mike Mills' background vocals, those are radically different songs,
1: and oh, then. Yeah. It, Because there there are other REM songs where Michael Stipe's doing the backing vocals also. Yep. And they just don't play as well as when it's Mike Mills doing it. I mean, for my taste.
0: Yeah. I think, I think Michael Stipe has a hard time. There's, there's a lot of, in music, there's a lot of vocalists, a lot of lead vocalists that end up doing doubling. So they, they double a vocal take or they'll, you know, they'll do a second vocal take and in a harmony line and I think for a voice like Michael Stipe's, whose voice is so, is so unique mm-hmm. um, in, in, in such a particular voice. I mean, you can tell when people are doing a Michael Stipe impression. Like, right. that is a very particular voice. I think because his voice is so particular, when he provides his own background vocals, you, you lose the push-pull relationship you need for a great, for a great harmony. You know, yeah. I think I think I think a background vocal has to be balanced. It has to be the counterweight to the the lead vocalist. And so when when Michael Stipe does his own, it just feels like, you know, doubling down on what on on that particular sound.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: When Mike Mills comes in with the background vocals, it's this perfectly balanced counterweight to yeah. uh, to Michael Stipe singing. And right. then and then one of the things I will say. If you listen to the albums that come before and after this, you understand what a great rock guitar player Peter Buck is. Mm-hmm. He, he is one of the great rock guitar players. Um, yeah. and, and there are, I mean, man, just incredible work that he does over... Um, and, I, and you and I were talking about this today. Like, if you take away the sound of the reverb and the snare drum on finest work song like that that could come out today like the 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 guitars in that are so good
1: and i gotta say i listened to document again i listened to it in the cd uh i listened to the cd version of it in my car and i've listened to some of it streaming on my my speakers over my on, on my tv you know streaming it And I get into it because those songs are good. So it doesn't matter if I can play those songs on my phone, and I'll still dig it because they're good songs. When I put Document on the turntable, it didn't sound dated at all. Mm -hmm. Truly, I mean, like it's just like oh, there's something about the way that that was mixed that was meant to be heard in this format. Yeah, and and so it holds up um, much nicer uh, on vinyl. Until you get to Lightning Hawkins, which uh, that is a song I cannot defend. If you're going to go listen, to document per our recommendation, we know that song is there. We know it is a sore thumb.
0: But but again, that's that's what we're. That's REM. Hit. That's REM. You're you're not going to find on every REM album. You're going to find at least one or two songs where you're like, oh man, what was that?
1: But don't um, you want that from a band? Don't don't you don't you want a band who is just going to like, hey man, we're going to throw it all out there it might not all work, but you know what I mean? Like they're, they're not pandering, you know, because
0: they're willing to take risks in the risk. Yeah. They're willing to take, make them interesting. And, yeah. and the will, the risk they're willing to make, they're willing to take will not always work, but their willingness to take those risks is what leads them into that right. uh, allows the space for the big successes. So there's right. a lot of big swings in REM's catalog. That you listen to, and you're like, that should not have worked, and mm-hmm. it's because you had, you know, two out songs on the album that didn't work. That the ones that worked worked well. Right. Like, I mean, I,
1: even, even number one record by Big Star has India song. Mm-hmm.
0: Right? You know, That's it. so there. I mean, look. The truth is, we have talked about very few flawless records because there are very few flawless records. Right. Um, it's it's not it's not a feat that happens often. So again. Perfection is not the goal, um, and that's that's kind of an ethos of of REM. And so I'm just for that. But all that to say, Peter Buck is a great guitar player, and yes. we see that on the earlier albums. We see that I mean, Monster in many ways is the love letter to Peter Buck's rock guitar playing. Like he, Peter Buck's guitar work on on most of Monsters just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. But what I love so much about Peter Buck's playing throughout automatic for the people and this is going to be a strange thing to say because it almost sounds like you're talking about jazz he's like oh it's the notes they're not playing but it really is peter buck's guitar playing is so perfectly restrained and fitting of the song that they're playing all of peter buck's guitar parts on this album serve the song perfectly and for someone uh-huh. who can play so for someone with that capacity to play to to have the discipline and the restraint and the maturity as a musician to over and over and over again make the choice to serve the song rather than you know rather than demonstrate all that he can do right. um, there there is something there's something about peter buck's choices on this album that I think are the most mature choices he makes on any on on any album by REM.
1: But let's not leave out one of their secret weapons, which is Bill Berry, mm-hmm. who is a great rock drummer, who also uh, as a drummer knows how to play to the song for the song. Mm-hmm. Um, but on this album, um, doesn't play drums a lot. Sometimes he plays bass while Mike Mills is playing things like piano and organ. Plays um, he, the
0: melodica on play, Find the River.
1: Yep, he plays the melodica on Find the River. I mean, so um, when he left the band, uh, there were interviews where like, oh, like you lost your drummer. And I think it was like Peter Buck was like, no, we lost a multi-instrumentalist who can do anything, right? We, mm-hmm. we wrote, I mean, we lost one of the best musicians in the band. Yeah,
0: you know? in, in in fairness, after after, so for those who don't know, uh, Bill Berry, their drummer, had an aneurysm, um, and so his—I mean, it was life-threatening. So he was—he was rushed into emergency surgery. Um, He—he was—I mean, essentially, had a long road back to recovery after because essentially he had a brain aneurysm that essentially affected him like a stroke would, and it was a long path of recovery for him. And he—that was the end of his musical career. And so I struggle with most of the posts
1: the the five albums that, that come out after well i mean and that's what i also really love about rem if, if you're getting into them because it's really easy to divide up their discography which i don't know if they'd like that but you have their first five albums on, on irs
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then you have their five albums on warner brothers and then you have their last five albums without bill barry so it's very easy to kind of like, okay, let me get into like these three different periods. And you mm-hmm. can really kind of figure out who this band is when you categorize them that way. If you're someone who's like like me, who's just like uh, very detached from like
0: the moments in which they were the biggest band. Absolutely. Well, without much further conversation, we want to get you listeners to our incredible guest today. We had a conversation with Lance Bangs. Lance Bangs is a director uh, for music videos and documentary films and comedy specials and television shows and uh, and feature films. I mean, he he has had an incredible, incredible career. Um, if there is something you love that has come out in the last 25 years, I promise you Lance Bangs, his influence, his hands, his His vision as a cinematographer or director has not been far from it, and we are so excited that we got to have him as a guest today, and we're so excited for you to hear our conversation with him. So we're going to take a quick break and tell you about today's independent record store of the week. We're going to be representing one of Athens, Georgia's own, and then you're going to hear from our sponsor today, and we will take you right back to our interview with our guest, Lance Banks. Hey, this is Rob, and I'm so excited to share with you our independent record store of the week, Athens, Georgia's own Wuxtery Records. That's W-U-X-T-R-Y. Wuxstree Records has been providing the best in new and used vinyl and CDs for the last 40 years to the people of Athens, Georgia. They now have three locations open every day of the week. They have their original location on 197 East Clayton Street in Athens, Georgia. They have Bizarro Street at 225 College Avenue in Athens, and of course, Wuxstree Decatur at 2096 North Decatur Road in Decatur, Georgia. You can reach them by phone at 706-369-9428, or you can shop with them online at Wuxtreerecords.com. Once again, that is W-U-X-T-R-Y records.com. Go ahead and pick up any of R.E.M.'s great albums at Wuxstree Records. Well, Lance, we want to thank you so much for being with us. For our listeners, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself.
3: Yeah, I'm Lance Bangs. I'm a personal filmmaker and artist. Live in Portland, Oregon, currently lived in Athens, Georgia throughout the 90s and and part of the 2000s. Um, If people were going to watch anything in the past that they've seen that I've done, I have done stuff directing um, Portlandia, shooting Jackass, doing a lot of music videos and comedies that people may have seen. If they haven't seen anything and I wanted them to check something out, there's a a personal documentary that I made with Spike Jones called Tell Them Anything You Want. It's a, a film about Maurice Sendak that i think you can get through hbo or amazon prime that it's about 40 minutes long it's it's probably the piece i'm the most fond of um i directed a, a documentary about the louisville kentucky band called slint and the other bands that were peers of theirs that's called breadcrumb trail and that's probably the most reflective of my personal uh, aesthetic and filmmaking visually um, the super 8 filmmaking that's in that combined with the interviews that i conduct alone um is probably the most distinct version of like what I try and shoot on a broader version. I've directed um, the TV show Portlandia and a scripted comedy called Better Things that I'm very fond of with Pamela Adlon and shot all the jackass movies over the years, uh, you know, as a camera operator or second unit director or one of the people making those and have had a great time working on those, which is a different sensibility than the rest of my work. Um, Musically, I was probably the most satisfying thing was the stuff with Nirvana Um, Produced a box set of theirs called With the Lights Out and and was very fortunate to work with them a bit and loved that band so much. Um, And I think in the context of today, we're talking because of the work I've done with REM over the years.
0: How did you first get connected to REM? How how did you get turned on to their music? Um, And then how did you connect with them as a band? I was most likely
3: in a military uh, based town of Montgomery, Alabama in the early 1980s when either Reckoning or perhaps Fables of the Reconstruction was coming out. And I was um, riding my bike to go to used bookstores and and record stores and kind of taking everything that was going on culturally and had a strong affinity for anything that was happening then, meaning that it wasn't a reissue of a Beach Boys thing from 15 years prior or 20 years prior or whatever. That whole wave of sort of uh, mid to late 80s, the night belongs to Mick Loeb. Um, Steve Winwood is back and now he's doing a beer ad. Like that whole (laughs) version of of what I felt like was baby boomer culture at the time was very repulsive to me and felt like it was strangling out the radio that should be playing The Replacements or R.E.M. or Troy Division or The Smiths or things that were happening in the 80s that I felt much more uh, of a connection to and felt like all those people were being slighted and shut out of getting a chance to be part of what people listened to when they were driving around or going to the lake or playing with their dog on a walk that like those songs that should have been being part of that soundtrack of everyone's lives were being snuffed out by here's Steve Winwood again doing a Miller ad. And this time it's also with Eric Clapton from 20 years ago. Like I I detested that so much. And so seeing the artwork or marquees for any new records that were coming out that were slightly mysterious or, elusive about what was going on, but that felt like they weren't trying to be um, a sepia toned Budweiser or Miller commercial (laughs) meant a lot. So whatever sort of like rotating thing hanging from the ceiling that was like made out of the artwork from Fables of the Reconstruction with that cube with an ear on it or whatever caught my attention and, and I would have bought whatever cassettes they had of Chronic Town and and those things at that time, and listen intently while riding around on a bicycle, on, on a sort of a Walkman with headphones, which was like a new um, thing in my life to be able to hear music alone and without other people hearing it at the same time. And so I was probably 15, not yet 16, when Green came out and they were touring for it. Maybe I turned 16 if it was in the fall after the election. And um, they were going to perform in in Philadelphia. They did like one show in the fall at the Spectrum, then like a spring show in 89 at the um, Man Music Center, which was like an outdoor place. And I was tabling for Greenpeace, uh, like giving out pamphlets or signing up people for um, physical mail, like, you know, pre... Pre email, pre cell phone texting, just like getting an actual hard physical address out of people to mail them pamphlets about what was going on with Greenpeace and then try and get donations. Um, and I think the band had set that up with Greenpeace to happen at all of their shows on that leg of the tour. Um, so I was there in that context and had a Super 8 camera that I've been using filming things since I was in Montgomery of just places I was staying or, you know, roaming around at night and filming gas station bathrooms and parking lots and places like that in laundromats, a lot of like 24-hour laundromats. And Michael and Jem Cohen, who's a filmmaker that I admired very deeply, uh, I think after soundcheck, they came over to say hello and and saw that I had a super eight camera and struck up a conversation. And at the time, Michael had a a foundation that was giving grants to underground filmmakers and making public service announcements, sort of 30-second commercials that could run on when there were like, you know, four networks rather than like all of the onslaught of cable TV and satellite that... A certain amount of their time of what they aired at that era, they were obligated to run what were called public service announcements. And I don't know if that still exists legislation wise, but at the time it was like you had to, you know, if you're going to run TV commercials, you had to also set aside 4% of your time or whatever it was to run things that were considered to be public service announcements. And so um, Michael had some great filmmakers like Jim Herbert, Catherine Diekman, maybe Gus Van Sant, uh, Jem Cohen that were making these like 30 second spots about recycling or voting rights or, you know, environmental concerns, uh, that would run every once in a while between commercials on, on television, television stations all across the United States. So I befriended them and, and sent a copy of some of the films I'd made as a teenager on a VHS tape down to Michael. And then, uh, an artist that worked with him in the REM office named Chris Bilheimer helped respond and helped get me set up to, um, Come down to Athens and study there and they didn't really have a film program but I, I eventually moved in with a filmmaker and painter named James Herbert Jim Herbert that had uh, kind of mentored Michael when he was an art student and learned a lot from him and learned experimental filmmaking and um, you know painting and, and things like that while uh, going to school in Athens
0: what was that the the beginning of that relationship like
3: it, it meant the world to me like um, I was almost psychically or brain landscape wise, like living inside records and books and movies at the time more than I was the real world of like late 80s, Bon Jovi era um New Jersey. <laughs> like I was pretty disassociated from that and pretty mentally um living in this weird headspace of biking around with the headphones on, listening to these records repeatedly on cassettes that would auto flip. I I might have been like not yet seventeen when I went down to Athens. Um it it was such a Phenomenal place. Like it just was different from the rest of the US. And I'd lived in plenty of different places from moving around and, and traveling uh, growing up. But, and I've been to other college towns, but like it was just such a distinct place where like it didn't take much money for people to get by. And people did not feel predatory. Like everyone that was there genuinely was like contributing to a shared culture, but were pretty idiosyncratic and had their own version of what they were doing or making or working on. And the what it took to sustain people and pay rent in a house with giant 14-foot ceilings and a porch and like a dog that would come in and hang out with you was, you know, $80 to $120 a month. Like it was like really livable in a way that people did not have to go work aggressively degrading jobs to sustain themselves. And so people could be poets and write great work and hang out with Vic Chestnut and Sam C. Wright and then share ideas on poetry and then go watch a $2 movie. Uh, Like literally, like we were projecting out, I started projecting movies there. Like the people that happen to be coincidentally programming the movies were like Scott Tobias. Like all these people have gone on to become like our generation's like film critic writers at the A.V. Club and other places, Noel Murray, Scott Tobias. Like they were literally like using catalogs to bring in any interesting... Usala, like whatever film that they'd read about in a book that sounded great, and then I would project it. And I didn't understand that that wasn't happening in 100 other cities in the United States, that like we were one of three places that you could maybe see this film projected. And, you know, John Waters would come speak and hang out, and Ariane was drawing so many interesting people to come to town. Like in the, the era that we're going to talk about for this particular record, Nikki Sutton, Billy Bragg, Robin Hitchcock were all like Uncle Tupelo, you know, uh, basically... All these people were in Athens hanging out and coming to all these events and being part of it because the band was like a nexus for all these other great things that were going on. And people would want to come hang out in Athens and make their records there and go to the cafes and go to the bookstores and buy used records from the people and, you know, take part in that. So Jeff Tweedy would just be at your film screening when he was a 20 something year old songwriter. It was just a an incredibly fertile thing. Bands would deliberately come from other places like, My Bloody Valentine, when they're going to tour the US for the great record, Loveless, like would play New York, LA, and come to Athens, Georgia. Like, you know what I mean? It was just such a phenomenal place, largely because of like what REM was generating and creating and the people that responded to that and wanted to come there, that it it was a magical time and place. And uh, I'm so happy to have been there during it.
1: What I love about this also, for listeners who don't know REM's timeline, At this point, they're already a huge band. They're like six years into a recording history. There's no reason why they couldn't have been in L.A., New York, uh, maybe gone up to Seattle. But the fact that they stayed in Athens, even after Life's uh, Rich Pageant, Document, which is huge, Green, which is huge, the fact that they're staying there and continuing to generate that cultural hub is pretty unique. Like, you know, that's not something that rock stars do.
3: Yeah, correct. Like, they were, you know, they were conscious about not being, quote, rock star, quote, uh, scarf around the neck, fan blowing their hair back. Like, they weren't going for that thing at any point. And they were very deliberate from the point that they did the Chronic Town EP and then had the choice of where to go record their first album. They were specific about, like, we're not going to New York, we're not going to L.A., we'll go somewhere else, ideally in the South, ideally with peers or friends or that we are contemporaries with, but like, we're not going to go to New York and make a record. We're not going to go to LA and make a record. And then they kind of stuck with that. So they may choose to go to Nashville or Memphis or Barrisville, New York, or, you know, once they had the bulk of, of automatic recorded, they went down to Miami, uh, their version of like Miami, which is, a you know, like the kind of beat up old hotels that Michael took photographs of for the artwork of, of automatic, but not, right. not the sort of like a uh, pit bull version of Miami. That's, that's what people might think of from things right now. Um, so they were very distinct but a lot of what they did was about being in Athens and being back there and living lives as musicians like you know Bill and Mike and Peter would often play multiple nights a week in different forms at the Georgia Theater the 40-watt club and so it was weird because like they have a reputation for not touring for out of time or automatic but like I must have seen them on stage 50 nights like in that (laughs) time period so it, it wasn't that they weren't doing shows fully it's just that they weren't doing the thing where they bring three buses and go to red rocks in colorado or right. something
1: would they use different names
3: yeah you know sometimes they would like just do word of mouth and again it's all pre-internet anyway so yeah um they didn't need to be on the flyer for everyone to like verbally let each other know that they were going to play the mental health benefit 92 or whatever and so in a in the size of these venues might have been like 800 to a thousand people if you crammed them in so uh The people there were primarily within driving distance or word of mouth distance to get there in time for the show. Anyway, mostly Athens, some people driving in from Atlanta or other parts of Georgia, maybe to get there in time. Um, But they, you know, they played the 40 watt multiple times during this era. And if they had someone in town, if they were working with Billy Bragg on a record or Robin Hitchcock or Uncle Tupelo or Nikki Sutton or the Trogs even, I think they did, they would, uh, you know, essentially at the end of those recording sessions at John Keene, they would all show up and play some of those songs and then end up doing a bunch of R.E.M. songs. Like I think the first time they played Losing My Religion was like at the end of the night in 90 uh, probably after like some kind of Kevin Kinney and, and Robin Hitchcock show.
2: Oh, life is bigger It's bigger than you and you are not me The things that I will go to The distance in you.
0: Yeah. So you're like 16, 17, 18 years old. Yeah. As all this is going on in in you are are being fully kind of embraced and welcomed in what was it like essentially being the kid in in all of these settings where all of this is going on in in did did the the I don't want to say novelty but did how special all of this was ever wear off and just kind of become, oh, this is the norm. This is this is what every day is like here in Athens.
3: I don't think I would say that the novelty wore off or it became like anything that I was like, ah, you know, blasé about. Um, but I think you also, in a lot of these situations and contexts, like you can't be endlessly like naive and gushing about everything because that makes you less of a peer and less of a contemporary to like, have a conversation with if you're always sort of like Mm -hmm. wow you know about everything that's going on um it became apparent pretty instantly that like it was better to be someone that made things and was creative and had a a take or an opinion about things that were being discussed rather than be just uh an acolyte or someone kind of fawning over what other people were making and so it became imperative to like create your own work make your own things and bring that to the conversation rather than just um Admire things that other people are making. When they would shoot larger music videos, like I remember riding my bike through downtown in probably 91 in the winter. When they were doing the music video shoot for Shiny Happy People that a woman named Katherine Diekman was directing um, and being kind of mortified at that song because it was probably the first song that I heard from what would end up being out of time. You know, losing my religion. If you hear that first, it's like, okay, this is an all-time classic. They're doing great work. This is a new way of writing. But if the first thing you hear is just shiny, happy people, it feels like, oh no! Like, what if what <laughs> happened to like the band that I loved? Like, this is the new <laughs> music. Like this, and that video shoot. Everyone was sort of in cartoonishly kids' TV-looking, handmade. Um, there's a woman named April Chapman who's a, a teacher in Athens that, or, you know, brought a lot of her. Um, Aesthetic and maybe some of her students to come be in the video, that it felt like a kids' show, which is deliberate on the part of what they're doing for the video. But like as the first glimpse of like what the next album was going to be like after green was like, whoa, what happened to like, you know, <laughs> Orange Crush or whatever um, sort of rock band things that you were expecting?
0: Well, yeah. let's go ahead and jump into the kind of main reason that we have you here, Lance. Tell us a little bit about your first experience and exposure to the songs from Automatic for the People and your first take on that album.
3: Yeah, um, it's a phenomenal record. It's, it's. I would agree with you guys choosing that if you were going to pick one or highlight one RM album, it's probably the one that is the best suited for that. Um, some of the songs that are on it are uh, the most fully realized representation of what they've been building towards and show the band that like all four members at their best contributing and making something that challenges how they put songs together. It's well recorded. It has some of the most kind of settled and personal songwriting of, uh, of what they would ever do and has songs that work melodically and are catchy, but are also inventive and feel like they're not just doing a knee-jerk reaction to what else existed at the time, but it's definitely influenced and informed by what was happening in the larger music culture leading up to them putting this record out. I think that I've got like deeper personal connections to some of the records that I lived inside as a younger person with headphones on. But Mm -hmm. I think you're both are correct that if you were going to, you know, here's the REM record for someone that hasn't checked them out yet to check out and connect with and take seriously. I think that Automatic is an excellent choice and and makes complete sense.
2: Smash, smash, crack, crack, push push, push, whack, Tie tie, another one to the rack Hey, hey, kids, hey, kid, rock and roll. Nobody, nobody tells, tells you where, where to go, go
3: baby. Um, for me personally, I think I, like you said, I was probably still like a late teenager and was um, helping out where I could at the REM office. I would like help mail out the, uh, they had like a sort of a mailing list and fan club that would send physical packages at the holidays and, and newsletters about what they're up to um, I was helping to kind of like put those together and mail those out. And like I said, if they needed like a videotape of them doing some like award acceptance, I think when Michael and Al Gore did a campaign event, I filmed that. You know, this is kind of like little things that were going on at the time that were not the full scale of doing like a music video or anything quite like that yet, but just helping out where I could. Um, My memory is that like Bill and Peter and Mike Mills were spending a bunch of time in the summer of 91. kind of demoing or writing songs and that Michael wasn't present for all of that, but like they just would go in. And I think that my memory at the time was that they would try and do different combinations of what they played. So I don't think Bill set up like the traditional drum rock drum kit and sat at that and played. I think it was more like, you know, Peter was still doing stuff on mandolin after having like all the great success of what they wrote for out of time on that. Um, but that maybe Bill and Mike had switched up what they were doing. And so they were writing stuff that wasn't written true, like someone hitting a drum kit continuously, like a rock song for four minutes. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: And then they were recording demos of those, which then they would probably in early 92 give Michael to kind of focus on writing. My memory of Michael at the time was that he would often like put on a cassette of what, you know, they had sent to him and kind of like either drive around or, or listen to it and sort of like come up with ideas or lyrics or what hit him out of it and what he responded to. Um, and I think that's how they kind of built some of that material. I, my memory is also that like when they were, like they were so prolific with like the great material that they did for Out of Time prior to this, that um, it was when they were mixing Out of Time that they actually started writing some of these songs and demoing them. So like they were at Paisley Park Studios doing the mix for Out of Time and while they were there they started tracking like demo versions of of drive and a couple other songs just as like ideas that they were developing while they were still mixing and finishing the previous record um, a thing that i'd admired about them as a band over the years was that they had so many great b-sides and outtakes and that you know there's half a dozen songs from when they did the session for reckoning that are as entertaining and as of a mood is what made it onto that record and the compilations that they put out like dead letter office is some of those outtakes and the things that they'd stick on in English 12-inch were, to me, very rewarding and, you know, part of what I loved about the band. So in February of 92, I think that they, like, did more focused recording at John Keene Studio, which is in Athens, Georgia, not terribly far from the house that Peter lived in at the time. Um, and it was in our, you know, sort of in a neighborhood that you would bike past and you would just see that, like, oh, like, you know, Mike Mills is out on the porch taking a break and you can hear a song blasting from the recording session inside. And, you know, maybe stop by and say hello, Um, otherwise just kind of bike past and know that like, oh, it looks like they're working on more great material and you know, it's a little bit rainy in February, but like it's cool that they're working on stuff and have the doors open. I remember that they went to new orleans for a while uh and i think they came back and finished up more stuff at john Keene studio and then it was pretty quickly like before the record was out they um i feel like uncle tupelo were at john Keene studio recording and that um peter was like involved producing that record and, and playing on a, a bunch of it so he was like you know midway through automatic for the people but also making time to like record an album with these younger like alt country songwriter Minutemen type punk kids and right um yeah and so like this whole era like that was another great thing is that they would just like i said they would have like billy bragg around making a record with them for a couple weeks and then robin hitchcock would be around and kevin kinney would be around and and again at the end of these sessions they'd often like turn up on stage at the 40 watt or or somewhere else playing playing songs so it was a little bit uh the first time that i heard the full record i think they sent a cassette over to the house i was living with jim herbert the filmmaker and painter at the time and he was kind of thrown off because like near the end of the recording they got john paul jones from led zeppelin to come to atlanta and use the atlanta symphony orchestra to record all these strings on top of everything and and they gave a cassette of it and jim herbert like his reaction was like, oh no, like they've made Bridge Over Troubled Water. Like (laughs) like essentially that Everybody Hurts felt too much like a 70s or 60s, like, you know, uh, string section ballad type of a thing. And that the lyrics were so direct and not obscured or um, buried or or indecipherable that they were so direct that Jim Herbert wasn't sure how he felt about it. (laughs) And it was like, wow, like it isn't, to me, like I'm not that snobby. Like I don't mind a clear melody that sounds great um, so i i liked it uh, but i understood his initial flinch or resistance so like this does sound almost like you know bridge over troubled water kind of a feeling <laughs> on some yeah. of these things
2: when you're sure you had enough the slide Yourself goes everybody cries. And everybody hurts sometimes.
0: Um, there are a lot of people in my generation who when you think about R.E.M., they think about Automatic for the People because their immediate thought of R.E.M. is to the music video for this song. But to that end, as someone who has worked making so many music videos and, and who was around the band when this album came out, uh, for, for our younger listeners and even for a co-host like Micaiah, what is it that, that a younger generation may not understand about the importance of MTV and of a great music video uh, during, during this season of, of music?
3: It's tough because when you say MTV, a lot of people, I think the aesthetic gets like passed down of like when people hear that, they think of like early 80s, Billy Idol, Cyndi Lauper, um, like all the imagery that gets put out in the culture now. To indicate what MTV was for the sake of younger people getting a snapshot of it is more of the sort of like early '80s pop, a lot of it UK Duran Duran kind of imagery. Um, That network was not playing the bands that I that R.E.M. felt were their peers and contemporaries. Like they weren't playing Husker Du and the replacements and the bands that R.E.M. were like peers with or, or you know playing similar shows or touring with or whatever, like the Minutemen during the 80s. And Peter Buck thought very little about music videos, thought that they were like a bad path to go down. Michael thought that they were like pretty bad version of like advertising for bands or music that wasn't real. And that like all the sort of fake lips syncing stuff was stuff that he did not respect or appreciate when he was, making records throughout the 80s. And so very willfully so, like RM wouldn't cooperate or do traditional slick pop music videos during the 80s when that was going on. Um, Michael would either direct them themselves and it would be upside down Super 8 or 16 millimeter black and white footage of train yards with text generated and a video generator over the top of it for Fall on Me, um, or Super 8 of shirtless men doing construction work and finest work song. things that were non-sync, not a performer lit doing lip sync of the lyrics well photographed in a conventional way. And so it was kind of a breakthrough when he started playing with the possibilities of like how to deconstruct lip sync or do a little bit of it um, once they were on a major label post green. And so, you know, that sort of probably like losing my religion, which had a phenomenal music video directed by Tarsem, which had some moments of like, lip sync that then he would stop partway through the the shot was closer to that. And so these videos that were being made in the early 90s by R.E.M., like out of time and automatic era, were getting played regularly. Like the people that programmed and ran MTV at the time were very fond of R.E.M. and respected them and and liked them and admired what they'd done and wanted the station to be considered a little bit more serious. They had their award ceremonies that they were doing at the time. They wanted to be like not thought of as like making disposable junk for teenagers. Like if, you know, the, the women that were running and programming MTV basically wanted to be like, we edit Rolling Stone magazine or we run the film forum in New York. And we want to go to the same cocktail parties. like, oh, we're doing Unplugged now. It's about songwriting. We're going to let Bob Dylan come do a bunch of songs. It's like they were kind of growing into that kind of a mode The people that ran the network at the time and they loved Neil Young and R.E.M. And, you know, and so these kind of people were getting chances to do performances or, or beyond MTV in that sort of like early to mid 90s era. And this is a little bit safer for MTV than the growlier, darker things that were happening in Seattle. Like they weren't showing Mudhoney videos in 1990, but they were showing REM videos extensively. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, probably 10,000 Maniacs, like other things that were like, oh, that's it's folk rock, good songwriting that we can appreciate or that we can like expect someone to not turn the channel away from compared to, like, some of the more scathing side of what was happening in, like, gnarlier Minneapolis, uh, Touch and Go, Chicago, Seattle, hard rock of that era of, like, Killdozer or whatever. So they fit in well. They were making, like, larger budget videos once they had Warner Brothers helping them to kind of, like, get great directors linked up with them, like Jake Scott or Peter Kerr to make these music videos. And they were being creative and, and deconstructing what normally would happen in a traditional music video. And so the video for Drive is black and white and shot outdoors at the dam in California and has like a crowd like you would see in a Nirvana or Soundgarden video from that time. But it's just like slower, I don't know how to pronounce it properly, but like elegiac, L-E, that sort of a graceful tone that fits the song Drive and a mix of like slow motion and the water hose hitting people. So you've got this kind of like overhead crowd shot that looks like what you're seeing in flashes of like a Jane's Addiction or Soundgarden video, but it's like suited to the moodiness and temperament of what REM are doing musically. So that stuff played really extensively on MTV and probably even VH1 and probably international versions of music video things at the time. And Michael was a compelling, charismatic figure that was like conscious of like how to use a close-up or to look into the lens for some shots but not complete a full, typical lip sync lyric for the whole thing like Peter Gabriel might have or someone else might have. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah. So his in many ways michael Michael never left art school.
3: He has lived the life of an artist, regardless of what was going on with him musically for his entire life that I'm aware of, and has been definitely you know making things and engaging and whether it's his photography or sculpture or conceptual pieces. He's sort of like lived among conversations with other artists and is drawn to them and and has a unique take on the world that is distinct and that is not in any way like a put on or a conceit that is like genuinely how he engages with the world and, and what he gets out of the people he meets and what he sees from their work and, and what comes out of him. And it's been fascinating to to be around that and see that over the years.
2: I will try not to breathe. I can hold my head still with my hands at my knees. His eyes are the eyes of the old shivering in gold. I will try not to breathe. This decision is mine. I have left it for life. These are the eyes that I
3: want you to remember. So, you know, I think among the larger world, there was a sense that they had Signed to Warners, put out Green, toured extensively for it, done the U.S. in the fall, did it again in the spring, went overseas, put out this record at a time, which was like huge. You know, like they couldn't have been a larger band like they were selling millions of records around the globe, but they did not go do the kind of typical tour where they again, like we said earlier, where they're like showing up with several buses at Red Rocks in Colorado and playing for however many thousand people fit there every night. and so. They rolled into Recording Automatic so quickly. I think I mentioned that I I think they were even recording some demos while they were mixing um, out of time for its release. And then put all these songs together, did the recording, you know, a mix of like Athens and maybe New Orleans. And I can't remember if they went to Bearsville during some of this. Went down to New Orleans, did some stuff there. Um, And then those string sections with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. And then put this record out that was such a weird departure like i talking to michael at the time there's a, a venue called club fred that a lot of these kind of like heavier more damaged underground rock bands of the early 90s were playing in athens it, it wasn't as like formal of a club as the 40 watt or the georgia theater it was where royal trucks or Sebado or bands that were on drag city or amphetamine reptile um or touch and go might play if they didn't have enough of a draw to guarantee that they'd have a big turnout at the 40 watt, for example. And, you know, Michael would be at shows there and we were talking about Nirvana because like that, basically the spring of 91 is when Out of Time came out and Losing My Religion becomes this like worldwide number one hit and feels like this is what, you know, what you might call alternative rock or like post-college radio rock is, is this like folk based different instruments they're not just doing bass guitar drums there's a mandolin it's in the way that prince would do something that wasn't typical arrangement or instrumentation it was like oh rem's pulled this off as well and have made like an incredibly catchy song with hooks that doesn't feel like other songs that you know and and yet feels completely satisfying and new and and exciting and you can't take your eyes off of that video when it's on screen um so it felt like maybe that's what alternative music in the summer of 91 is going to be. But pretty quickly, when Nevermind starts to get heard from the advanced cassettes that are floating around, and they sent a copy to the REM office, uh, you know, August and September of, of 91, it's like, oh, no, this is what things are going to shift to. And there's a almost like a, a sense or a fear on my part as a late teenager of like, oh, this band that I love that I'm like, happy to be like in any way contributing to or helping out with the era that they had of them being peers with The Replacements and The Minutemen and Husker Du and Black Flag and touring some of the same places, like that is at risk of being considered like, oh, that was the 80s. And now the 90s is not going to be folk rock, 10,000 Maniacs and R.E.M. doing like thoughtful, birds-derived, clever songwriting and and string arrangements. It's going to be territorial pissings and like this extreme, super melodic, super catchy, several years younger batch of songwriters coming out of Seattle and people that were on a similar sensibility that were in, you know, New York and and Boston and other places. And so Michael was conscious of that and loved Nirvana and loved Kurt and loved Courtney and was like social with all of them. But he deliberately put all those yeah, yeah, yeahs into Man on the Moon because he was trying to match the amount of like, yeah, he has in Lithium by Nirvana and outdo them. And like, he counted and there were like more, yeah, yeah, he yes, in Man on the Moon than there were on the Nevermind album or whatever. And so it was like, he was like finding ways in his own sensibility to respond or answer back to what was coming from that.
2: Tell me, are you locked in the pond? Andy, are you goofing on L?
3: At the time, Peter had a a lot of friends in Seattle and was kind of going back and forth and spending time there and working with Seattle people. And I think they might have mixed part of automatic at bad animals in Seattle. Like he sort of like started spending time there as well. So there was a sense of like what was emerging or bubbling up. But that year of 1991, again, like the spring and summer felt like REMs out of time was a dominant thing. But then in the fall, it felt like, oh, this Nirvana thing is like, knocking down Michael Jackson and everything else and by January of 92 was like the number one record in the country and what people were excited about and maybe where music was headed or where youth culture was and that um, having Automatic come out in 92 and be informed by that, but something like Drive doesn't sound like a hard rocking guitar first track to like match Mudhoney and Nirvana and Soundgarden, but feels like... um, I don't know, to me, like, it it felt like it was, like, slow but heavy and deliberate. And the lyrics were, like, deliberately kind of, like, 70s radio pop, but with a a weariness to them. Like, it felt conceptual to me. It didn't feel like this was a limitation of what he was thinking of lyrically, but that this was a deliberate thing. He wasn't, like, it's sort of like a David Essex type of a 70s pop song structurally or lyrically or something. So um then you hit the rest of the record and you've got all this sort of like orchestration and the things that John Paul Jones helped them with and the different arrangement they're using and this kind of like moodiness. And it felt like they were a band that like scattered their records and had different sounds and feelings on the earlier records in a way that they weren't always cohesive or it never felt like anything was a concept album. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like yeah. as much as there's things to fall in love with on Life's Rearch Pageant, it didn't feel like, oh, this is all of like one stitch of cloth and it adds up to something like a concept album. And so Automatic felt a little bit more like, okay, there's a cohesion to a lot of it except for Sidewinder, which feels like a lighter weight, catchier, less furrowed brow um, lark of a song or that they're playful on this one. Mm -hmm. But the rest of it did feel like they're looking at mortality, they're looking at loss, they're looking at the passage of time, they're looking at like, are we all now 30 and not 25? Is the world different, you know, in this era where on a major label and making mature work, like all those kind of feelings that were subtext of it to me um, added a sense of like a grounded record that was rewarding and thoughtful and and richer and had like these warmer spring tones, uh, warmer string tones on Sweetness Follows Mm. or Find the River that I don't know, you kind of came out of it at the end of the record like you'd been on some kind of a journey or or traveled through some different emotions.
2: Hey now, little speedy head on the speed meta says You have to go to task in the city Where people drown and people serve Don't be shy, you just deserve only just like
1: years to go There is, there is a more timeless quality to this album. It doesn't sound like it's trying to, like, okay, we have to, like, be in this moment here in 1992, you know, and, and, you know, could make the definitive sound of, you know, what this, what they're going to remember about this era. I mean, there is a real kind of timelessness. And I think that's why, at least for me, it it holds up so well compared to some of uh, the other ones, which I love. All right. It's it's weird because when I like make my list of favorite REM albums, I end up with this on the top, but then the next one is green, which is not like this record. Yeah. And then the next one is Reckoning, which is even less like either of those two records. I mean, sure, uh, yeah, but this one, uh, for some reason, really sticks out as something uh, really exceptional from them. When it first came out,
3: Man on the Moon was like a song on the record. And then as they played live and you saw how that song worked live and how it was like this like big emotional thing where people were up and standing and like invested in the song and singing along and that like it worked as something they could kind of build up towards the end of their set every night or playing the encores and get everyone really emotionally delivered somewhere. You realize like, oh, there's so much that happened, You know, just because you write a song and record it, it takes on a different life when you, three years have passed or you've buried your parents or a a relationship has changed or you're seeing the song live, You know, during the Monster Tour, and you never got to see them do it live when the record came out, and you were still in college. Like all those things that happen over time change how songs feel or matter or whatever. And so that might have just felt like a a random album track at the time, but then became one of their defining songs or one of the songs that you would get the most out of when they played live, you know, five to 10 years later.
1: Right. And for someone, honestly, uh, someone in the 90s who wasn't an REM fan but was a Jim Carrey fan yeah that, that was my way to man on the moon yeah uh, was through uh, that movie and how that and the great beyond appear on that soundtrack and and uh Michael Stipe produced that and that maybe maybe that's because I was more of a film child yeah. and I was a music child so that may have been my entry to REM was through film actually
3: yeah that's another thing I it's important about culture is that like If you make what just seems like a song title, but then it has a resonance or those combination of words, people connect or their antenna also picks up or or gets it, that ends up being a book title, a film title, uh, a clothing line. You know, people just take things and and turn them into other manifestations and that if you capture the lightning in a bottle of like, this song is called Man on the Moon, that's what I think of about whether you believe that that really happened or not and the way that Jim, that Andy Kaufman pulled these tricks and then Jim Carrey was trying to live as Andy Kaufman while making the movie of it. Like all that's an extension of like Michael watching the VHS tape of my breakfast with Blossie with Mark Williams or something, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's, it's wild how that all grows into other things as things spiral out from how they get created. What are the songs that you guys get the most out of on this record?
1: Oh, I was just about to ask you. Uh, Sweetness follows. Yeah. For me. And that that comes back to this, like, what, what sound is that? Mm. You know, like, it's just like, it's like, I, this doesn't sound like 1992, it doesn't sound like 2021, but it sounds like, like, as like, I, I can tell that this inspired so many things that I've listened to within like that 30 year period, but not exactly, you know, like, the, you know what I mean? It's just like, I mean, that, that to me, is like, that's like the REM thing, where it's just like, I can tell how this has inspired everything, but I don't even know how or to what degree, but there's, there's, there's such a purity to it. Listen here, my sister and my brother,
2: what would you care if you lost the other? I always wonder why
1: There aren't a lot of R.E.M. songs or moments on albums that just, like, penetrate my soul. But there are about half of this album that just, like, I feel very deeply, even as being someone who is pretty disconnected from it in terms of time. You know, I mm-hmm. I, I don't think I listened to the whole thing for the first time until I was in my mid to late 20s. Yeah. But it still had a huge effect on me because of things like... Uh, as follows and, and night swimming find the river i mean it's just i think it's what I, I think michael's voice is uh, in peak peak form there yeah, yeah. I, I love it rob you rob you're probably you've spent so much more time with these songs you could probably be more articulate than i'm I mean, just fumbling over this
0: well so i, I wonder and, and so lance you you and i are not far away from each other in age and so i i, I wonder just listening to you kind of talk tonight if if you if you've had a similar experience, you talk about here's this music that you've loved and and things you've been able to be a part of, but there's a there's a personal relationship you have to those albums that you listen to on a Walkman, riding a bike around town, you know that that in in those moments in our lives where we feel so alone and so unseen and so unknown. Um, something about a great album or a great song, something where a lyricist, you know, they're, they're singing something that is, is to their own unique experience, but in that experience, you feel completely understood. And, that, and for me, I think that's the power of, of great music. It, it becomes that personal. And so f- for me, I, I think now at 40, I think back to my relationship. As a teenager, to this album, and so I think, I think about songs like "Try Not to Breathe," and you know those those first crushes where you know it, you know it all it all feels so immediate and like everything is the end of the world. And then, of course, you you get older and you lose some of that. And so, thinking about the way Michael writes these lyrics and sings these songs. You know, and even in a song like "Night Swimming," which I, I again, I'm, I'm with Makai, I think is is one of the most perfect songs. Period. Certainly one of R.E.M.'s most perfect songs. But even in the the lyrics of that, you it feels so authentic, so transparent, and I can immediately connect to the the person in that song. And so, for me, as as a as a 40 year old listening back to this album that was such a huge part of my teenage years. I, I love these songs, but I love these songs in a different way now than I did then. And, and I think it's, it, it has to do with my own mortality and kind of like you said, that, that what I've seen, you know, the, the funerals I've attended, the reality that life is different now than it was then, and, and somehow in all of that, there is a depth and richness in these songs that comes out now that I, I don't know that I had access to as a 14-year-old or 15-year-old listening to these.
2: Night swimming deserves a quiet night The photograph on the dashboard taken years ago Turn around back so the windshield shows Every street light reveals a picture in reverse Still it's so much clearer I forgot my shirt at the water's edge The moon is low tonight
3: We've talked about night swimming and i'm sometimes curious like it it seems like the three of us all get something out of that song and emotionally connect to it and don't feel like it's maudlin or saccharine or sappy or you know manipulative in a way that's embarrassing is that just a sensibility that we all have despite different age ranges or like if you played me whatever mumford and son song that people love Intensely, that's like a piano ballad where someone's talking nostalgically about innocence or the loss of innocence, and I would think like ugh about it. Like, is that how other people hear this, or is this universally regarded as like, no, they got this right? The nuance of it is not insufferable. This is a beautiful song, and everyone can appreciate it.
1: So yeah, I, I don't know. I I don't I don't find it sappy, and in fact, it, it takes me a long time to even like really clock the lyrics of songs anyway. Right on. Uh, if this one didn't start with Night Swimming, it would probably take me a while to figure out what it was about anyway. Right. If you didn't say it just right out the gate and it wasn't the title. Um, so yeah, I mean, really, they're just... At first, there's there's the piano. I don't even know if I ever really recognized the, the strings immediately. Um, but there there's just something about Michael's voice and the melody. And there's just like these little words that will just trigger... Just something in me that just like, or I can smell it, or I can see, kind of like the half light or the golden hour on the beaches, or like in different beach communities in Florida towns, um, and now living in in Kentucky, which is where I spent most of my time listening to REM, um, does trigger some sort of nostalgia for for a place and different times. You know, like jumping into the pools as a kid was a very much middle school thing, whereas you know, going down to the beach that was more of a high school kind of memory so it it has followed me over different periods of time even though I wasn't listening to it at those times mm, you know right it's kind of like a, the magic of like 13 by big star
3: yeah yeah um,
1: but just uh but but that one that one's where i think it's a little too on the nose even though okay. it canonically a great song from one of the great rock bands
0: yeah i also don't know that um Despite our age ranges, I, I I would say that there's probably a similar, a similar sensibility. Um, I think I think that if you are predisposed to, to being a fan of REM, then I think that the things that would generally lead you to, fall in love with this band are the, are a lot of the same things that I think would allow you to connect to a song like Night Swimming, without it becoming cliche or saccharine. But but Lance, what what about you, Lance? How do you how do you hear the song? Why is that song? How is that song stuck with you over these last thirty years? Like it instantly,
3: just that that piano structure, and then Michael singing on top of it is so immediate and so. It's not really vulnerable because he seems pretty solid in the serenity of how he's delivering everything. Like he feels confident in his matter of fact beautifully sung articulation of everything that's going on. And and like you mentioned, kind of beginning with the the title and the first line of the song, it's so declarative in a way that is different from other songwriting that he's done um, that it made a really strong impression right away and then instantly made you nostalgic for things that you were still doing, which is a rare trick. Like Michael's not a particularly nostalgic person as an artist. He doesn't tend to go back and revisit or um, pull cheap, strings by dwelling on his own past or what people want to hear. But that song, like living in Athens at that time and and hearing that when it came out, it was like, this feels like what it feels like to be here. It also feels like times I've visited people in other parts of the world who have that same sensibility or feeling. It's not super specific. Like the fact that you guys both connected to it from Florida and other places. um, And yet it felt like it was it was creating a mood or memory for things that you were still about to do. Like we're going to go swimming when the quarry heats up enough in May of this upcoming year. And we're not going to like, just put this song on the radio, but like, it's going to be in our minds as we build new memories that are of this kind of serenity and feeling of, of innocence and connection and, and all that kind of gets brought up by that song.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's like the, what I was saying about like the kind of the, timeless quality but in a better way cuz like it's one part nostalgic one part just ties you to the present but then also the promise of like what's ahead
3: yeah exactly
1: you know it's 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 kind of a magical thing
3: yeah
0: there is something cinematic about so much of the music on automatic for the people in in a way that that is it's not just evocative it's almost it's almost like you can immediately place it of where that music will go in the soundtrack of your life. That yeah, exactly. You, you immediately know this. This. This will now become soundtrack to this feeling, to this moment, to this action, to this activity. Um, it, it is. It, it has that cinematic quality in in a way that you know. So, <laughs> this. This isn't. This isn't uh, comparing the two, but especially a. In, in music and alternative music, a, a you know kind of post-college radio music that was largely defined by Nevermind, which came out you know eight months before it. This Nir, Nirvana doesn't do what REM does here. That ne- Nevermind never accomplishes in many ways being as as cinematic as as Automatic for the People does. Um, it's a great album. But it 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 feels (laughs) now it feels very connected in nineteen ninety-one in in a way that automatic for the people feels more timeless in in comparison.
3: Yeah, I I think that's true. And I I think that there's a sense that Kurt's songwriting might have gone in this direction had he written for another nine months or recorded for another 12 months from when he stopped. Mm-hmm. That this might have been a path for him to kind of explore and, and go down and that the things that he had built that were primarily the feeling of what was inside his head or what was inside an amplifier, which is the setting that I get for most of his work, mm-hmm. um, that didn't have a strong sense of cinematic world building uh, character work, things like that, that Michael had explored in his writing. It, it feels like those are things that Kurt could have grown into or explored uh, if he had not stopped when he
0: did. Hey, I can't find that on the radio. Uh, you will turn to that station.
2: The world is collapsing Around our ears I turn
0: Well, so talking about REM and in their work before Automatic for the People and their and their work after it, uh, tell us tell us what what are your five favorite REM albums?
3: I I think we all agree if if you're going to try and get someone to check out the band REM, that Automatic is like the definitive mature work that's well recorded at the height of their strength, that has great songs and. It's the closest thing that they did to something of a unified work or a, not a concept album in conceit, but in like, of a, of a fixed mood or temperament. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I get the most emotionally out of Fables of the Reconstruction, like the song Kahotek, just playing that over and over mm-hmm. and being years into listening to it. And then finally deciphering that at some point he says, scissors, paper, like, you know, essentially the version of like rock, paper, scissors, and it's like, oh, that's what that half-delivered like lyric is. And now I know like 3% more of what that song is, having felt something out of it for most of my life or whatever. Um, so Fables of Reconstruction, um, the kind of like clarity and throbbing decisiveness that came out of Document is something that was like really energizing and has a lot to connect with. Life's First Pageant has, you know, the the intensity of, Cuyahoga and Fall on Me and and maybe like some of the best few songs in a row, rock album wise. Um, mm-hmm. The mystery and like, danceiness of like, the tempos of Murmur are great. Um, so I, I I'm not someone that historically is like, I only like the early stuff, but that span of records and the way that I lived inside them is probably like. Emotionally, what I'm the most drawn to or get the most uh, out of personally. But objectively, if I was going to tell someone like, what's the best RM record to check out, I think we all would agree on Automatic.
0: Well, we want to be mindful of your time, Lance, and, and, and we're so grateful that you spent this time with us. But because this is a podcast all about the greatest albums of all time, and of course, the, uh, the name of the podcast is You Forgot One, because... It's inevitable as you start thinking of the great albums of all times, you will inevitably forget one. So the way we're we're trying to deal with that is all of our guests were asking for their top five favorite albums.
3: I guess I, in my instinct against nostalgia and not just naming things that came out when I was a teenager, like, I, you know, Galaxy 500's on fire and Spider Spiderland and everything else that came out in 1989 that I adored, as a young person, like there's enough people talking about that, like back looking kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think the things that I'm listening to the most that are semi-contemporary or that you can find on Bandcamp are maybe more interesting, there's a, there's sort of a New Jersey and Philadelphia based guitarist who moved to New York named Chris Forsyth, who's putting out really excellent recordings in the present, who needs more people listening to him. His stuff you can find on Bandcamp, he's on the record label No Quarter. There's a woman who I think is based in Chicago named uh, Gia Margaret who does really lovely work. She put out a record maybe a year ago on Bandcamp that's her name, Gia Margaret, but the letters switch. So it's Mia Gargarit or Gargarit. <laughs> Um That one is like really excellent to listen to. There's a Portland based kind of like uh, melodic indie rock group called Mope Grooves. M-O-P-E is the first word. Grooves, G-R-O-O-V-E-S is the second word. Um, there's a songwriter named Cabane who's doing great stuff that Will Oldham sometimes helps out with. So, like, all the stuff that's coming out that's contemporary where if touring begins again or if, like, keeping someone alive by buying a $5 download means that there's more music in the world that's great, like, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: keeping that going is sort of more exciting to me than talking about how much I love um,
0: a public enemy record from the late 80s or something. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Lance, thank you so much for being with us. Um, We can't thank you enough for, for doing it and this has been a treat and, um, we 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 so love and appreciate the work that that you have done and will continue to do and uh we especially love uh your directorial work um on some of our favorite comedy specials of the last 10 years oh so yeah yeah it, it's 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 been really cool to to get to talk to you and uh we thank you for doing it okay great take have care a good
1: Bye. thanks Lance.
0: Well, once again, we had a great conversation with a guest that I think we could have talked to for hours. We want to thank Lance Bangs for his incredible generosity of time and for the two hours we spent uh, talking with him. Micaiah, let's end the way we always do. This was an album you and I agreed on from the very beginning, and I think as we've listened to the discography of one of the great American band's, we have both settled in on the fact that if we are going to include one REM album, it's going to be automatic for the people. So, does this album deserve a spot in our first twenty-five?
1: Yeah, I mean, going through all of REM again is just like th- in thinking so much about them, talking so much about them, and and hearing all over again how they inspired, you know, Sonic Youth and Pavement to Radiohead, to even up to our kind of area uh, of music history, uh, the emo side of things, right? Um, When uh, Dashboard's Mark Misha Branda Scar came out, uh, they had like a CD release that had a a DVD that had Chris Caraba playing a bunch of Automatic for the People songs. And at the end of that, Michael Stipe came out and sang Hands Down with Dashboard. You know, kind of letting, you know, Michael's typing being like kind of validating, you know, it's like, and I, you know, I see what's happening here and, and I I dig it. I, I christen this, you know. Um, you know, so yeah, you really see their hand in, in so many things and even in kind of even roundabout ways uh, with, with bands like Wilco um, back in like their Uncle Tupelo days like, like Lance was talking about. I mean, they, they just, uh, it's just so cool to have like such a huge rock band that, had no pretensions or anything about them. They had no intentions of being rock stars, but just people who made great rock music. And yeah, you just, you have to respect that, honor that, especially if they're capable of making so many great albums and such great music, you know, and, um, the other lists have them in the, you know, top 75, top 100. And so we would have, you know, we would look foolish not to include them. Absolutely. I also want to say this about Lance. It's so hard to figure out what to call him, you know, and try to roll out his credits. you know, like, oh, what, what do you say about this guy? i you going to go to introduce them. Because, uh, I mean, Lance is a capital F filmmaker. He's a capital A artist. And uh, we, we are so lucky uh, to have had him as as a guest. I'm so glad that uh, people are, are going to get to hear this. So, very excited.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, listener, are you an REM fan yet? Have we made you one? Are you rushing to go listen to Automatic for the People after this? Do you already love REM and can't believe that green was not our pick to be on this list? Uh, whatever your approach or whatever you think, we want to hear from you. So reach out to us on Instagram at One, on Twitter at Pod. Of course, you can find us on Facebook as well at facebook.com slash youforgotone or our website, youforgotone.com. Let us know what you think. Let us know what episode that you are excited to hear or what album we have forgotten and that you want us to cover in the coming seasons. With that being said, we will see you next week.
2: You stopped that nothing of your first chance Now it's nothing when it began, when it began, when it began, when it began, long ago or oh, yesterday.
1: Did you ever see
3: The Replacements while you were oh, like, oh god, yeah, quite a bit. I filmed, I shot Super Eight of them in the '80s. Like I, Whoa. I loved them, and and honestly, like they were very close with Peter and and Michael, and so. When they came through Athens, uh, they played the Georgia Theater in the tour for, I guess I'd seen them in the the 80s for like, you know, the things that they're doing at City Gardens in New Jersey. And then I went and saw them at that same Man Music Center in Philadelphia that we talked about for the REM tour for Green. They opened up for Tom Petty and my friend Tom Salmon and I dressed up in like teenagers doing like the kind of like madras, weird, ugly suits that they're deliberately wearing. Like we wore like you know, Madras pants that were too tight <laughs> for us. Like we kind of dressed up like them and, and stood in the aisle. Like the, the ushers wouldn't let really let us go down to like the empty seats for like this, you know, seven 30 at night before Tom Petty was going to play. Right. People were not there to see the replacements, but like they could see us cause it was still daylight. And we were like the only ones standing and kind of yelling out requests for unsatisfied or left of the dial. Right. And so they like, yeah, we see you like, and then they had <laughs> us kind of come down and, and hang out with them. Uh,
1: awesome.
3: They were just getting, you know, pretty wasted. And Slim was with the band at that point, who was great, just mm-hmm. a great character, very funny rock and tour, good guy to talk to. While we, I thought we were in their place dressing, but really we were in the Tom Petty dressing room. They were just like, there was better, higher quality liquor in the Tom Petty dressing room. And so that's oh, where right. we were all hanging out. And it took a while to understand that like all these other guys were the heartbreakers and we were <laughs> in their way. So it was, you know, like, as a, that might've been like one of the first times i drank alcohol as a you know i don't know if that was like when i was 14 or 15 or whatever but like they were great and then like they came through and and toured for um all shook down which was like a more moderate record but uh they had a tour bus at the georgia theater and michael and i went to go talk to paul after the show and it was a great conversation and like they you know people have kind of talked about the sense of rivalry that the Westerberg might've felt towards the success of REM, but like, I don't know, like they were all friendly with the same people at Warner brothers and Sire. There's this woman, Julie Panabianca that did the interview recording with the replacements for their promo record and did that. Should we talk about the government thing for, um, or the weather for uh, REM Mm -hmm. like, you know, similar kind of friend to both of them. And Peter was always social and doing stuff with them and would jump up and play live if they wanted. And, um, I think that people think that there's more of a rivalry than the sort of like friendship or admiration that at least REM had towards them.